You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, thank you very much uh, for bearing with us and, as I say, making that little bit of Trinity in Columbia history. Um, I'd like now to uh, invite our first panel to uh, uh, come to the front and particularly to welcome our moderator this morning, Fintan O'Toole, who needs no introduction, but you're very welcome, Fintan. And we'll away. Guys, do you want to come up? Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, you're, you're really welcome to, to this panel. Um, it's really lovely for me to be here. Um, I hadn't realised the auspiciousness of the occasion in its uh, in its full nature, um, and it's it's. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, it, it's. I think it is a, a very important moment because. Perhaps one of the things that uh, certainly here in Ireland we're beginning to realise is that when the world is going crazy, you can no longer entirely depend on intergovernmental relationships uh, simply to define the deeper relationships that you may have with with uh, countries that are important to you. Um, civil society relationships may in fact turn out to be of much more uh, importance to us and, and, and much more positive uh, potential for us uh, than governmental relationships. Um, the thoughts of St. Patrick's Day um, coming up in the White House and the um, uh, repeat of that um, strange ceremonial whereby um, all of the Irish Americans around Donald Trump celebrated the resilience and Courage and fortitude of poor Irish immigrants uh, who came to the United States and, and, and contributed so much, um, with not the slightest hint of irony uh, at all in terms of what they themselves were doing, um, reminds us, you know, that this sort of Irish-American relationship can be construed in deeply uncomfortable ways, um, and it's all the more important, I think, that uh, that the relationship has this kind of creative and, and positive substance. So it's, 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 it's really lovely to be, to be here on, on this occasion. Um, uh, after good news now, we're going to talk about, about bad news, I suppose, and uh, the, the nature of bad news, the nature of, of um, the, the challenges that face something that perhaps in, within the European Union, at least, we have begun to take for granted, and certainly United States have been taken for granted, which is, is this notion of, uh, of a public arena, uh, which is fundamentally sympathetic to the notion of diversity of opinion, um, of independent journalism, and of some commitments to evidence-based policy. Uh, and uh, we know that th these assumptions uh, are being challenged in the most radical ways at the moment, uh, and that there are very many factors involved in this. There's, there's obviously um, the anarchic nature of, of digital media, uh, and they're controlled by um, increasingly small um, uh, and oligarchic forces. Um, we know that there is, you know, very deliberate um, attempts to to interfere um, with free expression, with, with public debate, uh, with with civil discourse. 
um, coming from extraneous forces and particularly from the Russian government. And we know that uh, mainstream media, which has become the channel of abuse, um, is, is uh, under enormous pressure for all sorts of economic, institutional, and political reasons. And uh, however, none of this really matters fundamentally. It, it's all can be dealt with if you have a robust public commitment to democratic principles. Um, and the, perhaps the subject of our uh, discussion this morning uh, is therefore the most alarming because it, it, it raises the question as to, to how all of these negative developments in relation to a free media interact with uh, the apparent undermining of, of large-scale public commitments to those principles um, and the political expressions that, that, uh, that, that we're seeing emerging out of that interaction. So we have a very distinguished panel for you we're, we're, we're going to talk, uh, I suppose, broadly about the rise of right-wing nationalism and the concomitant uh, apparent collapse of the centre-left. Um, and uh, we have a, a, a panel, I think, which is really capable of, of, of discussing this um, in a, a, a very broad way. Um, so we're looking both at, at, at Europe and at the United States. Um, we're going to begin with... with uh, Dan Geary, who is the Mark Pagan Associate Professor of American History here at, at Trinity. Um, and uh, Dan is going to talk about uh, his titles from Enoch Powell to Donald Trump, White Nationalism in the UK and the US. Uh, so uh, Dan is going to begin, he's going to set an extremely good example to the other two speakers by sticking to the 10 minute time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, what if the stunning results in the Brexit referendum and 2016 U.S. presidential election were not simply parallel coincidences, but reflected a long history of transatlantic right-wing organizing? That was the question that we posed at a recent workshop held uh, here at the Long Hub, largely funded by the Hub, uh, in addition to the faculty and the uh, Department of History. Uh, that uh, workshop was, uh, was called From Enoch Powell to Donald Trump, Global White Nationalism in the U.S. and U.K., and will result in a book edited by myself, uh, Jenny Sutton, and Camilla Schofield. Now, in many ways, Enoch Powell and Donald Trump could hardly be different uh, figures. Uh, the former a classicist scholar and Oxford professor, the latter a crass and anti-intellectual reality television star. But both Powell and Trump espoused ethnic nationalism, the need to protect the ethno-racial character of the nation against the perceived threats of immigration and multiculturalism. Both tapped into popular sentiment among whites that their nations were being taken away from them by non-whites aided by traitorous liberal elites and oppressive liberal internationalist organizations. White nationalism is hardly the only uh, reason for Brexit and for Trump's election, but it was a major factor in both and an important subtext in the rhetoric of each. Uh, just for example, after the Brexit vote, uh, Trump tweeted, uh, quote, 
They took their country back, just like we will take America back. Well, who is this we who's taking their country back, and who are they taking it back from? So our project uh, explores the deep links among white nationalists in the US, Britain, and the former British colonies since World War II, as white nationalists responded to decolonization, movements for racial equality, deindustrialization, and the adoption of liberal anti-racism among leading international organizations, such as the United Nations. During this period, assumptions of white supremacy that had been widely held uh, by whites throughout the world at the start of the 20th century were challenged and reformulated. Naturally, in uh, <clears throat> the nine-minute time limit, I'm not going to be able to tell you all of the project's uh, conclusions, but I would like to share a uh, short uh, transatlantic love story called How Nigel Met Donald. <laughs> So in 2016, fresh off his victory in the Brexit referendum, Nigel Farage attended the United States' uh, Republican Party convention. While there, he befriended delegates from Mississippi who invited him to visit the state later that summer. To which Farage replied, the idea of a trip to Mississippi? Rather, absolutely. Now, why was Farage so eager to go to Mississippi? Presumably it's not because he's a fan of the Delta Blues. Uh, but rather because he was attracted to the state's reactionary politics rooted in its uh, history of slavery and the central role the state played in resistance to the African-American civil rights movement. Well, when Farage did come to Mississippi later that summer, uh, it turned out uh, Donald Trump was there campaigning at the same time. He and Farage uh, hit it off immediately, ultimately leading to Farage being the first foreign leader to meet with Trump following his election when they uh, partied together in Trump Tower and took a memorable selfie uh, in Trump's golden elevator. Uh, Trump then later, uh, in apparent ignorance of both British party, party politics and diplomatic protocols, uh, said that Farage would make a wonderful ambassador uh, to the United States uh, from the UK. Uh, Farage, in fact, had much longer standing ties with Trump's campaign manager, Steve Bannon, who had closely followed uh, the rise of right-wing European nationalism as editor of the alt-right website Breitbart, uh, which had opened a London branch in 2014 uh, that had strongly pushed uh, for uh, leave in the Brexit uh, referendum. Farage's journey to Mississippi uh, also reminds me of another trip taken to that state uh, nearly 50 years ago by another British politician, uh, Enoch Powell. Uh, Powell was uh, best known for his explosive and extraordinarily popular uh, 1968 Rivers of Blood speech, in which he claimed that uh, the immigration of non-whites from former British colonies uh, was destroying the character of the British nation. Powell famously feared that such emigration would result in rivers of blood, um, catastrophic violence, this anxiety for Powell was stoked by uh, looking across the Atlantic to a series of uprisings among urban African Americans in the mid to late 1960s. So for Powell, and many uh, to whom he appealed, uh, the United States represented a dystopian racial future that Britain uh, needed to avoid. But Powell's message found supporters across the Atlantic, among white Americans resisting the changes brought about by the civil rights movement. So it was that the organization that had led the fight against uh, racial integration, the Citizens' Councils, uh, invited Powell to speak uh, at an event at its headquarters in Jackson, Mississippi in 1971. 
Now, the Citizens' Councils uh, are maybe less known than a group like the, the Ku Klux Klan, um, but they're sometimes known as the Country Club KKK, uh, because they presented a more respectable version of white supremacist politics. Uh, and in fact, the Citizens' Councils were far more influential uh, than the Klan, even if uh, less well known. So in Mississippi, uh, Powell addressed Citizen Council's members, as well as a host of local and state politicians, um, you know, who were closely connected to the Citizens Council. In fact, as late as uh, 2000, it emerged that uh, the Mississippi Senator, Trent Lott, who was at the time the Senate Majority Leader, uh, had been appearing at uh, Citizen Council's events. Um, so Powell gave the message that, quote, whites are being held back to accommodate the Asiatics and blacks. Uh, and this message went, met with roaring approval uh, among the Citizens' Council's audience. Indeed, at a time when segregationists in the U.S. South were on the political defensive, they were eager to find allies abroad, such as Powell and uh, the white supremacist governments of Rhodesia and South Africa. Now, I think we have um, wrongly assumed that because right-wing nationalists are primarily concerned with the integrity of the nation, that they are parochial in their politics. Uh, they may be, and indeed are, anti-internationalist in terms of opposing supranational organizations like the, the United Nations or the, or the European Union. And uh, part of the reason why I think the, the, that explains this strong nationalism and the opposition to internationalism is because international organizations, at least since World War II, have become identified with a kind of liberal anti-racism. Uh, so these groups are certainly anti-internationalist, but their politics are very much international in orientation, in that they take inspiration from and are based on connections between uh, like-minded movements of the world over. So, I mean, in liberal settings like universities, thinking globally generally has positive outcomes, and we're rightly celebrating the connections between Trinity and uh, Columbia. Um, but I think we, it's mistaken to connect thinking globally to you know, ideals of cosmopolitanism and tolerance. Because as this project, project shows, the right has been equally global in its thought as the left. The international right portrays the current struggle. I think, uh, you know, they, they, in their own sense, portray the struggle as one between globalists and patriotists. Um, but I think that is false. And indeed, the very language of globalists versus patriotists betrays the international thinking of the self-styled patriots because the same rhetorical distinction is used by right-wing populists from uh, Marie Le Pen to Steve Bannon. Um, so in fact, you know, this, old, old, this language itself is, uh, is a global language of the right. Now, to the extent that global ties among uh, the right have been studied at all, the focus has been on the extreme right, on neo-Nazis uh, and the like. Uh, and there's been far less attention paid, I think, to the electoral right, uh, figures like Powell and Trump are certainly controversial, but they're also mainstream politicians, uh, you know, who uh, play a role in governing of their, their nations. Uh, and indeed, the electoral right uh, has received much of its dynamism uh, and uh, uh, paradoxically, paradoxically its respectability from the far right as uh, the enthusiasm for Trump, Trump among neo-Nazis and neo-Confederates has shown. But the existence of such far-right groups also served to make the electoral right more palatable, able to present itself as uh, not extremist, uh, and then able to appeal to white nationalist sentiment while often disavowing its racism and assembling a broader coalition in which white nationalism is not the sole appeal. 
So if you look at the Conservative Party in the UK today, it's basically uh, taken up the program of, of UKIP, um, you know, but it, in the conservative form, it's taken that dynamism, but it appears to be uh, more uh, respectable. Now, I first became aware of the history of global links among racial nationalists when I was reading through the newsletter of the Citizens' Councils, and I was struck by how globally oriented these Southern segregationists were uh, in pouring, when I poured through countless articles on migration and non-whites to Britain and on Rhodesia and South Africa. I was right then uh, that what I found was but the tip of an iceberg of transatlantic connections. But I wrongly assumed uh, at the time, just a few years ago, that the effort to make these international links was uh, purely a defensive move by a dying ideology of white supremacy. I won't pretend to predict the future of white nationalism, but I think it's obvious that it's very much part of the present on both sides of the Atlantic. And to understand that present, we need to better understand its globalized past. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel. Um, and our next speaker is Professor Jürgen Barkov, um, who is Professor of German uh, at the Department of Germanic Studies and head of the School of uh, Languages, Literatures and Cultural Studies here in Trinity. And Jürgen is going to talk to us about liberal democracies, our Germany and Austria next. Good morning, everybody. You might think this is an alarmist or sensationalist headline and don't expect an answer to the question posed from me, but what we have been seeing happening in the recent Bundestag elections on the 24th of September 2017 is really an unprecedented cataclysmic shift in the political system of uh, the Federal Republic of Germany, and I want to uh, look at that uh, for the next nine minutes or so. The alternative for Germany, a neo-nationalist, xenophobic and populist party with considerable proximity to core ideas of the Nazis, achieved 12.6% of the popular vote, comfortably jumped the 5% hurdle, which prevents smaller parties in Germany to enter parliament, and became the third largest party. For the first time since the first Bundestag came together in 1949, a far-right party sits in parliament and has 92 deputies. At the same time, the two so-called Volksparteien, the parties who claim to represent the people and not minority interests, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, who in the last elections comfortably shared over two-thirds of the popular vote, now were reduced to barely 50% combined. They had their worst electoral results in their history. In the case of the Social Democrats, that's a history of over 150 years achieving 32.9% and 25%, losing 20% of its vote in each case. The AFD mobilized 1.5 million non-voters, attracted 1 million voters from the Christian Democrats, and almost the same amount from the left, 500,000 from the Social Democrats and 400,000 from the left party. Perhaps most worrying, the age group in which the alternative for Germany is most popular are those between 30 to 59. So neither the older generation who is stuck in the past, nor the angry young men who are impatient and inexperienced, and it's mostly male voters. As this suggests a collapse of the vote for the moderate left and a seismic shift to the right, all this suggests that. But what I find most disturbing, and that is the first point I want to make, is that there is very little sense that the reality of this has hit the political establishment. 
Angela Merkel, in the discussion of party leaders on election night, closed her contribution and the whole debate with the remarkable sentence, my motto has been for a long time, in der Ruhe liegt die Kraft. That's a Zen Buddhism truism, roughly translating as strength is derived from calmness. Suggesting that she is really out of touch with the way the majority of her electorate feel. Yes, she has been voted back as the leader of the strongest party because of promise of experience, predictability, and stability, but arguably, um, but, but she has lost 20% of her support, arguably, because of her in unpredictability in the summer of 2015 during the so called refugee crisis. Um, in the process, um, the mantra of her party, which was a key ingredient for the success and stability of post-war German democracy, no party right to the Christian Democrats, broke down. Neither the calm and rather boring election campaign nor the current dragged-out talks about talks, talks to form a so-called Jamaica coalition, Jamaica because of the party colors, green, black, and yellow, seem to suggest that the message has hit the political establishment yet. And that, to me, seems to be a big problem that we perhaps can return to in the discussion. So Angela Merkel doesn't seem to be too perturbed by the results, but is she to blame? That is my second point, and the answer is, in the true fashion of an academic, yes and no. Yes, because fear of immigration, of an uncontrollable influx of foreigners and difficulties with integration are seen as the most burning political questions among voters right across the political spectrum, and the AFD, with its xenophobic and anti-immigration rhetoric, has been very successfully in capitalizing on that. Merkel's great humanitarian gesture of September 2015 of opening the borders with the concomitant temporary loss of control with which she solved an immediate political crisis created a long-term one and backfired in a big way. Germans have deep-rooted fears of loss of control in general. That's a very well-established fact of the collective psyche. And, all, and of all the people, the guarantor of calmness and stability has caused this, which is why she now needs to portray herself as ultra-calm and because she doesn't convince with this. It has made Merkel deeply unpopular with considerable parts of the electorate and hated by many. The vicious anti-Merkel demonstrations of, the, of her campaign are only the tip of the iceberg. Many in her own party see her with enormous distrust and unease. Those who voted for her did so not to a large part out of enthusiasm, but because they didn't see an alternative for Germany, or rather the one they did see was thoroughly unpalatable. But it wasn't just her dramatic and brave crisis moment in September 2013 that supported the rise of the AFD, but rather the general direction of the policy with which she has moved her party so far into the center or to the left, depending on your perspective, on key issues like energy, subscription, gay marriage, all ones <coughs> sacrosanct issues for German conservatives, that she has left a wide gap on the right into which the AFD could move. Her Bavarian sister party said on election night, we need to close the right flank. Whatever that means, I will come back to this. At the same time, analysis has so shown that the vote of the alternative for Germany is largely a protest vote. That a majority of AFD voters, while being concerned about immigration, do not share the hardcore folkish beliefs and positions of the AFD party program. Furthermore, analysis has shown that it is more intangible fears and anxieties 
that have driven and motivated this pro protest vote. The AfD is the only party, uh, the supporters of which are skeptical of modernization, see themselves as losing out in the processes of globalization and technological and societal change. Deep-seated frustration about the loss of control of the nation-state, loss of power of national governments in a globalized world, fears of social marginalization, loss of status, a precarious economic situation, and rallying against what is perceived to be the liberal, dominant liberal consensus. All this is coming together in this protest vote. These are underlying trends that Merkel has no or little control over and that we see right across Europe, we see it in the US. Um, Dan has touched on some of these aspects as well. It is highly indicative that the AFD won so many votes from the SPD, the Social Democrats and the left party as well. Fears about growing, and this really is a remarkable shift, fears about growing inequality and lack of social justice find their home no longer on the left, but on the right. That is a seismic shift. We can talk about the mistakes that Schulz, the, uh, the, the, the candidate for Chancellor of the Social Democrats, made in the election campaign after a very strong start, and the decision on election night to go into opposition by the Social Democrats is also indicative that they may have actually understood this. My third question, my final point, what does all this mean for German democracy? Immediately, not very much, but that is precisely the problem. The Jamaica coalition, though immediately being dubbed by the media the curse of the Caribbean, is doomed to be successful and will prevent a shift to the right in actual politics. It might be difficult to see how the pro-immigration stance of the Greens and the closing of the right flank of the, of the Bavarian a Christian Democrats will be squared, but it will, because there is a strong sense of responsibility shared across these political parties. Uh, as, a, as a founding member of the Greens in my, uh, in my youth, I'm really, it is astounding how much the Greens see themselves as sort of carrying, carrying uh, the political system of the Federal Republic uh, these days. Furthermore, the right-wing parties in Germany have a tendency for vicious infighting and a terrible track record of incompetence and no appetite for any form of constructive politics once they are in Parliament. So there's a good chance that motor voters might become pretty disillusioned pretty quickly. The first day after the election, there was a big split in, within the AFD between the moderates, who aim for becoming credible coalition partners in four years' times, and the hardliners, who, who really follow a sort of Germany for the Germans ideology, which is very, maybe we can talk about this, which is very, uh, in its core ideas and in its rhetoric, is very close to, to, to Nazi ideology. So... There is also talk of extending the Bavarian Christian uh, uh, social, CSU nationwide in order to drain support from the F AFD. If that were to happen, the moderates in that party would flock to this. But talk about closing the right flank is very dangerous. If you fight extremists by taking over their arguments, do you weaken them or do you strengthen them by legitimizing them? Arguably, it's both. Austria 
in Austria, Kurz and his Austrian People's Party did exactly that. They were extremely successful with that. And what's now happening is that you get the FPÖ um, in, uh, as a coalition partner. Now, it's, it's not the same as the AFD, but, um, but they, that, that's sort of the strategy that in Austria was at the same time both successful and catastrophically unsuccessful. But to me, the real question for the future is, how does the political establishment in the German-speaking countries, and we can talk about Switzerland as well, can, how can they reconnect to the disenfranchised and growing third of the vo of voters that are totally disillusioned and disconnected, that combine deep frustration and anger with an anti-intellectual and anti-elite stance that relishes in the simplistic and polarizing rhetoric of the right-wing populists. I think for the future of our democracies, that is the real question. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Jürgen. Um, and our third speaker uh, is Dr. Balaj Apor, who is Assistant Professor in European Studies uh, here at Trinity. And he's going to um, talk to us uh, again about the liberal democracies, liberal democracies, and the European Union's eastern borderlands, the end game for democracy, happily followed by question I'm, I'm not very optimistic, am I? Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm actually a historian uh, myself, a historian of communist propaganda, and um, I focus on a time period of transition, um, unfortunately, probably, um, a, a period of transition after the Second World War when a nascent uh, democratic regime was gradually replaced by an authoritarian and then eventually by a dictatorial regime that is the uh, uh, Stalinist uh, uh, Soviet-type uh, uh, regime. There are. I, mean, I don't want to take uh, comparisons too far, uh, and, and I shouldn't probably. But there are uh, incredible similarities and, and parallels between uh, uh, the two time periods, especially uh, at the level of propaganda, which leads leads me to the one main point that I'd like to uh, put through today, and that is the importance of text and words in periods often uh, of transition, and this is something that we, we often tend to forget about. These are texts that are produced by, of course, politicians, by political parties, um, and, and uh, indeed by uh, entire political systems or, or regimes. And these are texts that are uh, quite often um, uh, considered by political analysts as, as simply means to an end. So politicians say something, or parties uh, come up with a statement in order to justify a certain political action. I would like to argue that words and texts are political action themselves. They should be considered as important as policies and institutional uh, changes. And sometimes words and texts, uh, or propaganda if you like, actually tell us a lot more about the nature of a political system or the nature of, uh, of political ambitions, actually, uh, than policies or institutional uh, changes. So this is the one uh, big point that I'd like to um, go through today, and then I, I would uh, try to uh, uh, fill that up with some substance, mostly uh, from uh, using Hungary uh, uh, as an example. Um, apart from the trains, by the way, this morning Dropbox was down, uh, which for me was equally catastrophic, so I have quickly scribbled uh, notes. I had lovely uh, typed notes in, on my computer, um, so I'm, I'm trying to work. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, Dropbox is more important than Facebook. <laughs> All right, so um, just to uh, illustrate my point, in Hungary it was birds and text that actually broke down the, the, the left, uh, the, the, the socialist-liberal alliance uh, between 2006 and 2008. And I would argue that it is, and it was not policies. And I would also argue that in uh, uh, these days it is birds and texts that keep the current uh, government in power and not actual policy. Um, now, uh, let me elaborate on this point. Um, as for the decay of the left, uh, you might remember 2006, uh, Hungary was in, in the news a lot. Um, uh, the prime minister uh, admitted to uh, lying to the population, day and night, I think was the phrase that he used, uh, which, uh, which led to mass protests, street riots even, uh, and of course police violence, and uh, it, it culminated in a massive political uh, and moral crisis which eventually led to uh, the collapse of the government and effectively the disappearance of the Liberal Party from the political uh, scene in Hungary, and, um, uh, and you could argue that to a certain extent the disappearance of the Socialist uh, Party as well, uh, of course, it wasn't as quick. Uh, they're still there, but um, uh, uh, they, they, they've been agonizing since, and it, it looks like that they might not even make it to the parliament in the elections uh, next year in 2008. And this all started with a simple lie, you might argue. I'm, of course, I'm simplifying things with, uh, here a little, but uh, I just want to illustrate my point. Um, so, um, as for uh, the current uh, government, you could argue that um, uh, you know, lies, incompetence and corruption that characterize the Socialist Party uh, and, and the Socialist um, government between 2002 and 2008 also characterizes uh, uh, the, the, the current government. You could also argue that the current government actually took lies, incompetence and corruption to a whole new level. Uh, corruption uh, could be regarded as official policy. Indeed, it was regarded by uh, an, an intellectual um, who is very close to the governing party as official policy. He argued that corruption is official policy. Uh, the man actually happens to be a university president, so that's, a, that's a, an example that you might not want to follow. Um, as for incompetence, of course, uh, we, I'm, I'm only raising this point because it has been raised in, in the previous um, uh, comments uh, as well. Uh, there were waves of senseless centralization, uh, and of course, that is very closely linked to chronism and corruption as well. That, of course, inevitably leads to, to uh, uh, massive incompetence uh, throughout um, uh, state bureaucracy. And of course, uh, there are lies, uh, and there are a lot of lies uh, flying around uh, these days. There are three main propag propaganda campaigns um, at the moment, or in the last two. Uh, Two years that dominates governmental communication. One of them is related to migration. You could call that anti-migration uh, propaganda campaign. There is uh, the propaganda campaign against uh, uh, the Hungarian-American businessman George Soros, uh, and there is, of course, the constant, slightly more modest, uh, but still uh, very dominant campaign against the EU. Um, I'm I'm not very uh, happy with the term. EU's uh, or Euroscepticism, I think uh, it's an understatement, or euphemism in this particular uh, case at least, I would argue that the campaign is an anti indeed an anti-EU uh, uh, propaganda campaign. But those three campaigns are very loosely connected to the truth. Um, 
Yet it looks like that, uh, despite the fact uh, <coughs> uh, that these two bays are, are, are not really close to, uh, to reality or, or to the truth, they don't seem to provoke the same response uh, as the lies of the, of the socialist pr prime minister had in 2006. Uh, uh, in, indeed, it seems that Fidesz uh, will easily win the elections in 2018, and, and social support uh, for, for the party is still massive. Uh, so the big question is this, I think, uh, if words and lies could bring down, or if words and lies actually broke down the left and liberal alliance, how come that they, they don't uh, provoke the same response in this particular case? And I believe uh, the answer to this, but um, again, this is, um, uh, you, you might be challenged, you might challenge me at this point, I believe that the, the reason for this uh, has to do with the nature of the text that the government produces the nature of the propaganda, if you like, uh, uh, that, they, that they pursue in the last two, three years. And I believe that this is, uh, that these texts, uh, this particular propaganda actually stabilizes uh, uh, the Fidesz government, um, um, uh, despite, again, the fact that it's, it's, um, uh, it's saturated uh, uh, with lies. Um, so I think that um, it is not. It, it doesn't matter what kind of lies you tell people. I think uh, that's the main point. And the lies Fidesz is telling to society is is the lies that society, um, I wouldn't say, is willing to hear. But it, 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 these are lies that society is willing to accept. Um, uh, and these are lies that are linked to basic uh, human emotions, and that is fear. And hate. I, I, I'm afraid it is as, as simple uh, as this. So they appeal to basic human emotions, and they appeal to those emotions in an incre incredibly efficient and incredibly successful way. Uh, of course, the, the, the picture is slightly more complicated than that. Uh, Fidesz propaganda actually transformed significantly and quite successfully over the years. Uh, it, it became centralized now, um, it is now well-resourced, and so on and so on. I don't have time to go into the details. But there's one, one important element that I would like to highlight. Previously, uh, beginning from 2010, well, between 2010 and roughly 2015, uh, governmental propaganda was incredibly repetitive. They kept on repeating the same message over and over again to death. It, it, it led to incredible boredom. They had one message, for example, in 2010, and that method, message was that the, the previous eight years uh, are to blame for our current troubles. Uh, they repeated that so often that the, the, the phrase previous eight years actually became verbalized in Hungary, and that's, that's, that's a beautiful little linguistic story, but I don't have time to go into that. Uh, and after a while, they realized that, I mean, they, they, that, that message actually continued to, to feature their propaganda in, in, in the first four years uh, while they were in government. So then they realized that, of course, they cannot really say previous eight years because that would include their, their four years in term. So they, they, they tried to change. Uh, and for, for a brief uh, time period, they, they essentially plagiarized one message from the Tories. Uh, in England, and that message was um, the hard-working little man, if, I, if I'm correct, uh, which was, I think, it, uh, the, that didn't survive for too long, I think for a month or two, uh, but that was also repeated to death. 
uh, and that actually became counterproductive. And that's when the, the entire government uh, propaganda structure changed significantly. Um, so now, in the last three years or so, they stopped um, uh, repeating simple messages. In fact, they, well, propaganda is, is, is still simplistic, uh, but they're not, um, they stopped trying to hammer one version of the truth into people's heads. In fact, they present <laughs> a multiplicity of, the, of version, versions of, 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 a, of a simple story. They, they present uh, various different narratives, even competing uh, um, uh, or, or narratives that even contradict uh, themselves about a single event. Uh, this is what um, uh, uh, Yale historian Timothy Snyder calls postmodern uh, propaganda in relation to the Russian uh, context. Um, and this is basically characterized by the fact that it's not one version of, of the events that are repeated uh, over and over again, but multiple versions of, 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 uh, of the events. Uh, are portrayed to the population in order to uh, to, to promote insecurity, uh, of course, uh, and um, uh, and hesitation, and kind of a sense of crisis as well. I would argue that this uh, postmodern propaganda was tested last spring uh, uh, during um, uh, what could be called the CEU affair, uh, when uh, uh, the government introduced uh, a law that would make uh, one of the American universities, one well, of the most prominent American universities actually in, in Budapest, the Central European University, uh, would make it uh, unable to operate or function uh, in the country. And the, the law was justified by, um, uh, by a number of uh, uh, political utterances uh, that, were, that were not particularly uh, Related to each other, it was. I actually lost uh, counting the different versions, the various different versions of the story that the, the, the government came up with. At some stage, they argued that there isn't only one CEU in the country; there are, there are two CEUs. And then two weeks later, said that they said that there are three CEUs, and I think they, they went up to five. So people just actually lost a sense of orientation uh, in that whole narrative uh, about the CEU, and effectively. They uh, became, um, they lost interest in the in the in the whole affair, and um, I think that was uh, the goal. And this, um, I'll ask you to maybe wind up in a, in a minute. Yeah, I'm winding it up now. Uh, this this actually leads my leads me to my concluding um, um, argument, and that is uh, this um, significant shift uh, towards postmodern uh, propaganda. As um, two experts of of, of propaganda, at least. <coughs> was a shocking proof of the growing um, Russification of political rhetoric uh, in, in, in Hungary. I, I would argue that the transformation of communication strategies uh, <coughs> last spring, or texts, or words, if you like, is an indication of growing authoritarian tendencies. In fact, uh, being a pessimist, I would argue that authoritarian rule is actually being uh, consolidated uh, at the moment. Uh, so. Uh, Hence my uh, fairly pessimistic title. I think democracy had actually uh, lost. And on that, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so thank you very much for those, those three really wonderful papers. Um, I'm gonna, I just want to ask a couple of questions, maybe, and then we'll we'll open up to to uh, to, to, to the audience. Um, one of the questions 
that struck me in relation to thinking about, say, Powell and Trump, um, is that Powell, as you pointed out, in personal terms, completely different personae. But also, oddly enough, Powell seemed more of an insider, you know, in class terms, in accent, in rhetoric, became an outsider. So, so effectively, Powell failed. He, he did not take over the Conservative Party. He was marginalised. He ended up in the most marginal possible position for an Englishman, which was as a MP for South Down, I think was it? Uh, basically, uh, you know, he, so he was, he was effectively marginalised by the mainstream right. Whereas Trump, on the contrary, managed to take over the mainstream right, to take over the Republican Party. So what are the forces? I mean, it was fascinating that you, you saw the continuity but, but what also are the, the changing conditions that make it possible for a sort of white nationalism to become dominant within the right? Well, I think, I think this microphone is, uh, this one's not working, but uh, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Obviously, the political dynamics there are quite different, but I think we'd be speaking now about the uh, some of the things that are, you know, part of the title, the, the collapse of the center-left, or I suppose just the collapse of the center, the idea of mainstream norms. I mean, if you look at how it's extraordinary, I mean, there were people who went on strike in favor of his speech. You know, he got uh, tens and tens of thousands of letters. Uh, he, uh, you know, the opinion poll showed he was, you know, 80%, you know, uh, approved of the Rivers of Blood speech, but he lost his position in the shadow cabinet. Um, and as you say, it was kind of you know exiled from the political system. So you had a uh, like a strong uh, political establishment at the time that uh, that excluded him, um, and that doesn't exist in the United States today. Um, you know, you don't have the same you know that that establishment doesn't you know doesn't have that same power. I think so. So I think this the, the, these are part of the same story. It's not just the rise of the right. It is the like the collapse of the of the center, not just the center left, but to a to a to a degree, the center right as well. Yeah, and actually, that question that I was going to ask you about, about um, I mean, you were making a very strong point, which to me was, in a way, quite shocking. Which, which was not just that you had the entry of the far right into the German Parliament for the first time since the Second World War, but that in your telling of it, that. In a sense, the German mainstream still doesn't quite get it or understand the, uh, the horrendous and historic nature of this, which from the outside seems very surprising. One would have thought simply the symbolism alone of the far right coming back into the German parliament would, would set all the alarm bells ringing. So, so why is there that complacency? And, and is it related to what Daniels are talking about around this sort of weakening of the centre? Yeah, well, maybe they maybe they are alarmed, but um, they don't know what to do with it. They, they don't know what to do with it. I think in the short term, what we will be seeing, and you can say is that my, is an adequate response, is that those parties who carry sort of political reason and strongly identify with the with the political consensus of 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 of, of, of democracy, that they that they sort of join forces, and you can see that. You can see that in the in the in the opening of the parliament, it's it's uh, it's always um, it has always been the case that each party gets a vice president of the parliament. The the one that the AFD put forward was not elected by the others, 
uh, I think for very good reasons, because this man, Gaza, had, had argued during the campaign that Muslims had, shouldn't have the right to enjoy religious freedom in Germany, because in the countries where Islam is a state religion, it's not granted. Yeah? So fundamentally uh, denying a fundamental basic right of, of democracies. So he wasn't, he wasn't voted in. So you can see that they are sending out strong signals. But, but uh, the AFD responded and said, that's great. Every vote against him will, will result in 10 or 100 votes for us. So by marginalizing us, by portraying us as demons, you are uh, effectively helping us. And really, they, I, I think they have not learned that. So to answer your question, the, 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 the German political establishment hasn't learned to deal with this very successful policy of controlled provocation and escalation with which the AFD um, has its successes. They provoke with something outrageous. Gauland, the, the, the second in, co in command in the party, said uh, during the campaign, we have to have the right to be proud of the achievements of German soldiers in two world wars. Wow. What sort of achievements uh, of, of a sort of an aggressive war in which 20 million Russians were killed by the German Wehrmacht? Yeah? So obviously it's part of this normalization of German history. England and France have done terrible things with their armies. Uh, and everybody accepts that they can be proud of their armies. Why not us? Yeah? But really, they don't, he doesn't do this because he really believes this, but because it, can, it extends what can be said, it provokes, and, and the German political establishment hasn't really found a way of dealing with that. That's the first point. And more fundamentally, they don't know what to do with the disenfranchised, um, sort of growing disenfranchised proportional to, of the party. Maybe the Social Democrats, initially even Schulz, uh, became candidate for Chancellor. He sort of, it looked that he was doing a Corbyn, but he didn't. He didn't have the courage. He became very mainstream. He talked about the little man, the hard-working little man, and it didn't do him any good. Mm -hmm. So but now they are in opposition, or they go into opposition, they need to reinvent themselves. Maybe they can, they can sort of regain some credibility as representing the disenfranchised. But currently, there is nobody. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just thought you, you, you were, um, before I saw really cut you off, you were, you were coming to talk about Russification um, and, and, and the role of Russia. I, 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 I wonder maybe you might just develop that a little bit um, in terms of how formal that is. Is it, is it simply a matter of copycat tactics, or is there a more direct Russian role? Because obviously this is a question which arises in relation to the United States, for God's sake, you know, it's not even necessarily in what uh, was formerly the, the Warsaw Pact countries, you know, we're, we're seeing this as a, as, as a factor in our politics. It's, it seems increasingly that it may well have been a factor in the, in the Brexit campaign. Uh, but also, how does that play into Hungary's membership of the European Union? Um, do, 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 are, we, are we getting to a point where there is a direct conflict uh, coming between the European Union and Russia and a kind of new, a new Cold War, effectively, on the concepts of Europe? That's an incredibly complex. <laughs> You've got about twenty seconds on it. <laughs> uh, well, I, but the rhetorical influence uh, is um, is clearly there, um, and I I would argue, and as I have argued um, uh, since the spring of this year, it has become dominant. 
um, especially in relation to the CEU affair. Again, going back to that affair, the, the crackdown on the CEU actually followed the crackdown in Russia on the St. Petersburg European University, I think a, a few days after that. So the CEU affair, to many, actually came completely out of the blue. But if you know the context, there is, there is this, of course you cannot really prove this, but there, I mean, the closeness, the proximity of these two events are actually quite telling. Uh, but there are more formal ties as well between the two countries. Uh, President Putin has visited uh, Hungary uh, twice uh, this year, if I'm correct. Um, one of them, uh, his first visit was linked to um, uh, a collaboration between Hungary and CEU um, with regard to the extension of the nuclear plant uh, in Hungary. Um, it, it, it seems that it's going to be Rosatom. Uh, uh, the Russian atomic uh, uh, enterprise that is going to extend uh, and, in fact, uh, maintain operating uh, the Hungarian nuclear plant. So it's a huge business. Um, uh, the second visit was linked to uh, the, I think it's the um, International Judo World Cup, I think, or, or European Championship, I can't remember. But that was because, I mean, you know that President Putin is a, is a big fan of, of judo himself. And, he is um, the greatest judo practitioner I've ever seen in the world. <laughs> he, was, he was the main honor of guest at this, at this story. Uh, but there are, there are multiple other ties as well. Uh, one university, unfortunately it's my alma mater, um, uh, has decided to award um, an honorary degree to, to President Putin as well. Uh, it was, this, of course, provoked uh, protests from various departments. Uh, they were silenced. It seems that the city of Debrecen is going to host uh, about three to 4,000 Russian engineers who would be trained at this university with the aim of, of basically training them uh, to work at the nuclear plant. So the whole infrastructure is going to be built around that, around that, 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 that link between two, two countries in relation to nuclear energy. So it's it's massive. It's like um, it, it is like an octopus, uh, pretty much. Um, and uh, and of course there are there are there are the, the, the political uh, aspects of the story as well. Um, the crackdown on, on NGOs, uh, which uh, which actually started a few years ago, but culminated around uh, the CEU affair as well, uh, with the implementation of a new uh, law. Uh, which actually um, uh, um, uh, makes it obligatory for N NGOs to, to display on their website that they are receiving money from abroad, and this is what NGOs do. So essentially the government stigmatizes them as agents of foreign interests, which is uh, clearly the, the Russian line, has been the Russian line for years. I mean, I could go on, uh, I guess, forever, but these are the most important yeah. uh, aspects of that story. Um, Dan, the, the, uh, that's a question I just want to ask each of the three of you really before we open it up. I mean, the, the, the thing that's there in, a, in all of these contributions and in all of these questions, of course, is the, the ability to mobilise the, the them and us um, and to particularly uh, mobilise anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, obviously, in that sense, it's, it's complicated by existing racism. Um, but Trump, for example, was quite careful about <laughs> one of the word careful can never be um, <laughs> properly used in the same sentence but, but he, he, he tried to avoid overt racism 
ja tiem tiem in relation to the African American community, but very clearly, obviously, mobilizing anti-Hispanic sentiment and anti-Islam anti sentiment. Um, and, and of course, this is the common thread. It's 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 also the pivotal uh, question in, in Germany. It's it's propagandized in, in Hungary greatly. And again, I'm I'm sort of wondering about this resurgence of the sort of white nationalism, which is related to this, which is that. It, um, it, it one of its characteristics uh, electorally, uh, maybe Germany is different, but you know, if you look at Brexit, for example, or if you look at Trump, has been that white nationalism is strongest where immigration is weakest. That that paradox that actually it, it's mm. it's framed as we are being swamped. Mm. Our way of life is under threat. Um, we don't know our own place anymore, and actually the places in which migrants settle are the large uh, globalized metropolitan areas where people uh, are actually quite used to inward migration and tend not to be able to be mobilized in a, in a sort of like nationalist way. So what, what, what explains this? So, so if you go back to, to Powell, right? Powell was able to stand in government and say, look, these people are coming into your community. You can see them they're taking over, and I think in that famous speech, as we say, within a generation, the blacks will be dominant in, in Britain. And so it's a, it's a very visible, tangible kind of rhetorical and, and, and propagandistic weapon. Whereas white nationalism now seems to have been able to almost um, become, in a sense, postmodern. It's almost, it's, it, 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 it's, it's detached increasingly from people's actual experience. Does that, does that make sense to, to what, what you can talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element of that, but I think also, I mean, if, if we're talking about the United, the, the, the demographics in the UK are different, and they're, you know, uh, and there's a different kind of balance, I suppose, in this kind of politics. Um, but in the US, anyway, if you look at the demographics nationally, um, I mean, whites are a declining share of the population nationally, declining share of the electorate. I mean, Barack Obama, a uh, black man as president, son of an immigrant, you know, so I, I think that uh, once I was I was giving a lecture to uh, a student here, and I, I I said, okay, well, I'm just going to look at the demographics. I put into Google when you know when will the U.S. become majority non-white? You know, what year? First time I come to DavidDuke.com. Yeah. You know, so they they're very well aware that they are they are losing national political power, um, and that that's what's motivating them. And I and I think in the long term, in fact, that the only way that they can succeed is through undemocratic means. Uh, which indeed they've already employed a, a variety of these, you know, gerrymandering and other undemocratic features of the American, um, you know, constitution. In, in Britain, obviously, it's it's a it's a somewhat different um, case because the demographics aren't quite the same. Um, and unlike the U.S., which has a long history of immigration and multiracialism, you know, if you're talking about uh, you know uh, Britain itself. Um, you know, there's there's not really much history of, of immigration to uh, to Britain, non-white immigration anyway, until after World War II. Um, now, but if you're going to talk about British politics, the thing you have to talk about is empire, you yeah. know, which is often ignored. Yeah. You know, which yeah. very much was configured in these uh, you know in, uh, racial terms. So, you know, I think uh, there's a different dynamic there, but it, it does fit into a, a similar kind of history. Yeah. 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 Yeah
It is interesting that uh, in the recent British general election, um, Powell's old seat, the constituency in which he, he made that infamous speech, um, was won by a black Labour candidate. <laughs> so it's not, not all um, grim, but, but um, I mean, clearly in Germany, the, the, as, you, as you mentioned, I mean, Mark Merkel's extraordinary decency, you know, her humanitarian response or her compassion um, seem all to have curdled and gone sour and become toxic for the political system. And is this also, I and mean, obviously you, you, you spoke very eloquently about the way that Merkel has become very popular, but is this also one of the things that's undermining the centre left, you know, which is that the centre left, for ideological and, and, and humanitarian reasons, tends not to want to play the anti immigrant game, yet much of its face is deeply suspicious and, and, and angry about some of what's been happening. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, briefly, um, in Germany, it's exactly the same. The support for the AfD is strongest in East Germany. Yeah. In Saxony, it's the largest party, and you have very few immigrants there. So, so it's it's the same. And if if you look at Switzerland, yeah, thirty percent, the largest party there is a xenophobic, uh, populist anti-immigration party, and they won in two thousand and nine a public referendum that banned the building of further minarets. Because they were symbols of supremacy, of Islamic supremacism, um, they had four in the country, yeah? <laughs> and they won a referendum on this. So, so, and, and it bears no relationship to real to real politics, yeah. yeah? But, yeah. but yes, yes, you're right. Um, as so often, the centre left is, hit, is 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 caught between a rock and a hard place in being sort of uh, um, not anti-immigration and trying. To, to, to do politics for the disenfranchised. Mm. And they can't square that at the moment. They can't square that. Yeah. And, and they, they don't have the answers. Yeah. And I don't have them either. So yeah. I think your analysis is, is, is right. Yeah. And of course, one of the things that, that Fidesz has been so good about that, that doing I mean, is, is, is linking the European Union with, with immigration. You know, that, that the assertion of control, which is a common theme, of course, that very much as sort of appeal to the idea of control, but that the assertion of control over, over immigration is also mobilized as a, as a national self-assertion against the, the, the huge power of the European Union. Isn't that the case that he's actually been very, very effective at making that connection? Well, that, that is true as well, but at the same time they also claim that they are to defend Europe yes. from, from the hordes of uh, migrants. And I think it's, uh, we're talking about birds and texts. Um, I mean, what they were incredibly successful in doing is, well, it was actually a semantic game. Uh, they never called refugees refugees, for example, uh, during the, the height of the refugee crisis, because the word refugee might evoke positive sentiments, of course, in the people. They systematically, from day one, uh, be calling them migrants. Because migrants, you could, you, could, you could argue that they're taking your jobs, they're taking your wives, they go to destroy your culture, and so even if, if that is not uh, true. I mean, there are hardly any, any refugees or migrants in Hungary uh, at the moment. I think, um, uh, I think there were a couple of hundred who, people who were actually granted uh, asylum in Hungary in the last few years, and at the same time there are around 20,000, 30,000 people leaving Hungary. Uh, so actually, emigration is 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 a, is a problem uh, in Hungary. Migration 
uh, isn't, but they manage to, to subvert this story. Um, and people actually believe uh, that migration is a big story. And uh, I mean, it's, it has resulted in uh, in absurd um, uh, 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 cases. I mean, recently, the 1st of November, which is the Day of the Dead, when people go to cemeteries and, and visit, visit um, um, you know, their, their old village cemetery. And this is where people move around in the huge variety of cemeteries. And in one small village, people thought that people who visited cemeteries were actually migrants, and they called the police, and there was a huge panic. Uh, just because people who they didn't know, because their parents died and they were buried in the cemetery, returned to the village and they thought that they were Margaret. So that's how uh, effective this propaganda and fear-mongering people uh, is. It is actually quite worrying. You mentioned uh, the uh, Swiss debate. My, my son was racially abused for the first time in his life. Um, he's a big, very white fellow, and uh, he was racially abused in, in Zurich. Well, he was walking down the street with his Danish girlfriend and her very white family, and they were racially abused for speaking Danish. And he screamed at them as foreigners to get out. You know, so that, I, I didn't know whether this was actually a sort of sign of some hope. <laughs> 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 much. Um, I'm going to attempt some up, but I, I, I might just briefly address the question about the dark arts and, and about defences in a way. Because uh, we, we, it is worth remembering after um, an appallingly bleak panel that um, <laughs> we're not. Uh, but it is worth remembering that we're, we're, we're a country which doesn't have a far right movement, which actually doesn't have a fascist in Parliament, and doesn't have the obvious prospect of one. You know, that there is, there, you know, um, nobody can be complacent about these things. But it's, it's worth asking why not, because this is a society which. Uh, experienced very, very rapid inward migration, which was entirely new in its history, um, and then followed that with a catastrophic economic collapse, in which all authority, all sense of sovereignty, all sense of trust in institutions and elites quite rightly collapsed. And I think if you were looking at it in the abstract, you would have said, oh, you're in real trouble here, folks. You know, putting these two things together... You know, somebody's going to be able to articulate it's their fault. They have to go home. They came here because we were we were really rich and we were doing well, and we're not rich in Britain anymore. We can't afford you people here anymore. Go. You know, you would have thought that there was a real kind of opportunity to do that. And maybe the counterexample is just worth thinking about, which is why it didn't happen. And one reason it didn't happen, and this is the thing we maybe need to where the connection between universities and, and experts and scholars and public discourse is so important is historical consciousness. I mean, one of the reasons it didn't happen in Ireland is because we're also them, and we know we're them. We, we know we're those immigrants. And we know it because there is a strong sense of, 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 of being historically informed. You know, people understand that they're one generation away, or maybe not even a generation, because maybe it's their own kids who are also... Um, you know, this is a society which has 17% of the population currently in Ireland was born outside of Ireland, and 17% of people born in Ireland live elsewhere. Um, so, but, but that sense of connection that actually we're also them and they're also us, you know, is, is, is a really important political prophylactic. And it's one of the things that, it's one of the reasons why history matters and why the work of scholars matters as well, because it feeds into that. And I know we're going to be talking about this a lot more in, in some of the other sessions. The second point to make is that, um, in terms of some kind of optimism, is that um, one of the crucial things in the end is expertise, uh, which has been so badly um, undermined, sometimes quite rightly, by the arrogance 
by the the, the, the the ideological blinders that so many experts put on themselves, uh, by the false reassurances that people got about globalization and our banks are wonderful and they're all fully capitalized and there's going to be a soft landing and all that stuff. Uh, but expertise matters, and it matters not just in universities, but it matters in public discourse. And, it, uh, and this is the role of, we've got one of the great public intellectuals here with us, you know, the role of, of the public intellectual of, of feeding expertise into public discourse. It's not easy, but it matters enormously. And it takes many different forms. One of the reasons why you need a lot of old-fashioned journalism is that you need people who've been around long enough to say, that's bullshit. <laughs> Sorry, that's not right. What you're saying now is not right because I was there. I remember that. Um, I've read that report that came out 20 years ago. I, I know that what you're saying now is a lie. And if you don't have that expertise, if, if journalism is a matter of you know, people who don't have a job, who are on a gig economy, who are just trying to get something published and make a living, then you strip away that expertise. And we have to find ways of, of publicly preserving the notion of expertise within the media. And that doesn't mean arrogant sods like me telling everybody what to do, although I don't do that anyway. But it actually means people who, who, who do know something about what they're talking about and are, on, are in a position to challenge the lies that you were talking about so, so eloquently. Um, the... The last thing to say, I suppose, is, is that um, in terms of the centre-left, or the centre-right, the centre it, it, it seems to me that we have to address, in, in a way, um, a very basic thing, which is, which is fear. You know, I think fear is a common theme in all of the terrific presentations this morning. It's the manipulation of fear that is ultimately, as we know, uh, so appallingly destructive, and we know that there are no limits to human behaviour. I mean, w w once fear becomes the central driving force of, of collective action, there is nothing that is not possible. And so the, the fundamental question for democracy is, is how do we address fear? And you don't address fear by telling people it will be okay if you just get with the programme. You know, that you just don't understand how great neoliberal globalization is that you just haven't really realized yet that yes of course there are winners and losers and it just happens that you're one of the losers but look at all the winners look, you know, it's, it's right. it, it doesn't work and, and how you address fear it seems to me is not that mysterious actually it's, it's because people are afraid not necessarily about where they are they're afraid about the trajectory of travel a person who is doing badly but really feels that actually, for me, but even more for my kids, things are getting better, is open to the politics of decency and hope and, and civility. A person who feels, I'm actually okay where I am, but it's slipping away from me, is not open to that kind of politics and is open to a toxic politics. And actually, you know, a lot of that can be addressed, and it can be addressed by public policy, it can be addressed by public discourse, which actually says to people, you know, here's a reason why you should feel hopeful. <laughs> and, you know, the betrayal of people where they were told, look, you're going to have to put up with all this globalization and all of this disruption, but don't worry, we're on your side. You know, because I'll be fighting every, I'll be getting up every day to fight for your rights to, to, to education. Meanwhile, the universities are being turned into, you know, corporations with, 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 with massively paid multimillionaire managers sucking up fees, 
loaded definitely speaking. One of the reasons why Jeremy Corbyn was so successful is he says, actually, you know what, um, people shouldn't be paying enormous university fees. It's not that complicated. Um, Ireland has the second highest university fees in Europe after the UK. Um, maybe one of the things you might address is actually saying, well, you know, what gave people so much hope after the Second World War was the idea that you could go to university, that your kid could go to university, even if you, were, you, you yourself had never been to secondary school. It's not impossible to reconstitute that appeal, and, and, and it can do an enormous amount to make people think, actually, the trajectory might be towards a more civilised uh, set of opportunities and towards the idea of a better life. Um, I just feel the need to say something positive anyway, but, <laughs> um, which, is, which is not at all to, to, to deny the brilliance and the, and the force of the great contributions that we've had from our three speakers this morning. I'd just like to thank them very much on your behalf. Thank you.